You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. I started this podcast over a decade ago, in 2012. At the time, few were talking about the things I wanted to talk about. Feminists who were critical of the third wave of the sex industry, of attempts to frame things like objectification and pornography as empowering, who wanted to focus on women's material realities, who were concerned about encroaching gender identity ideology and legislation, and who wanted to protect women's spaces, had not only been pushed out of mainstream media and conversation, but out of the modern feminist movement and even the left. I wanted to provide a space for those conversations. A space for women who felt silenced or who didn't have access to legacy media or online platforms to share their work, their activism, their views, and their realities. So, I started my own platform. For over a decade, Feminist Current has been a lone voice of dissent in Canada. I have expanded my work to additional platforms since then, but Feminist Current remains a pivotal platform for and archive of women's work, movements, and dissenting voices. And we want to keep it up, but we need your help. Feminist Current has been ad-free, government grant-free, wealthy investor-free, benefactor-free, and independent for years. We rely solely on individual donors, so people like you, to sustain our work. Please consider signing up for a monthly or one-time donation by going to feministcurrent.com and clicking the donate tab. Thank you so much for supporting our work and women's speech. Today on the show, I am speaking with the pioneering Jennifer Billick. Jennifer has been one of the only people in the world to document and call out the true roots of the transgender movement. And in this interview, she tells us all about it. This one will change your view on everything. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. It's so great to talk to you at long last here over the internet. Thank you, Megan. I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate your inviting me. Well, I really appreciate your work. I've learned a lot. And I feel that it's important that others learn from your work also, because the kinds of things that you have been researching and writing about and covering are, for some mysterious reason, uh, really not talked about. Um, And so I want to do our best to get the word out. But before we get into all that, I would love it. If you could tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is, um, things like that. Um, sure. So, God, I just hate using labels today that it just, you know, squeeze you into a box so easily. <laughs> but, I mean, we, I guess we need them. I'm an artist, basically. I've been an artist all my life. I'm a painter. I'm also a writer. I've been a writer for, you know, many, many years. Um, got into journalism uh, at the time of Occupy Wall Street. 
um, a friend of mine was photographing. She's a photographic journalist and she um, was photographing Occupy Wall Street. She asked me if I would write about it, uh, you know, contributions to go with her uh, photographs. And so I started um, writing as a journalist at that point. And um, I'm also, and here we go again, I'm a feminist. Um, been a feminist since I'm um, probably in my 20s. I'm probably um, a very bad feminist. <laughs> it's the only kind to be. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I really, that label is really becoming kind of caustic because nobody really knows what it means anymore. Um, feminism has been so fractured, especially here in the United States. You know, there's so many factions. You know, there's environmental feminism and there's cyber feminism and there's radical feminism and liberal feminism and corporate feminism. And there's so many different feminisms, you know, that it's like, well, what are you talking about? You know, when you say feminism, you know, I I really like what Kelly J. Keene is doing in the United uh, Kingdom, uh, calling herself uh, a campaigner for women's rights. I love that because it just, you know, it cuts to the chase. What are you doing instead of what are you? Do you know yep. what I mean? I've been informed by feminist um, theory, so but that's not the total of who I am. You know, it's just it's information that I've taken in and processed, and it's one of the lenses that I view life through. So and have been since I've been in my twenties, and I also got into the environmental movement. Um, and there's another, you know, another loaded. Um, statement, you know, the environmental movement, like, what does that mean? You know, was I, was I doing like first thing, you know, uh, what, what's that, um, that environmental group, uh, very, very famous, uh, environmental group. Uh, Greenpeace? Is just, yes. Well, Greenpeace is another one, but they've all been so corporatized now that it's just ridiculous. You know, um, you know, I fought for, uh, for the wellness of the planet, you know, I've put my energies into that and have written about that. Um, and I haven't painted in like probably six years uh, because I went down this rabbit hole of um, the gender industry, mm -hmm. what has turned into an industry. Um, when did you start? Do when did you start looking into that? What you call the gender industry? Well, it was probably around 2013. I started to gather some material. I had written a piece for, uh, what's the name of the book now? It's an anthology of feminist writings on this issue. Um, oh, female erasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and I wrote that with, with a colleague and we, we, we addressed the, um, the money aspect of this, you know, mm -hmm. and so it was around that time that uh, I started investigating, but, um, well, so I was, uh, you know, working with this group um, on the West Coast, um, and they were trying to get some platforms to speak, but every time they tried to speak, uh, they had already been uh, pigeonholed as transphobes because they acknowledged biological reality. Like, if you're going to work for the, you know, for reality, you know, the environment, you're going to have to address you know, biology and biological facts. So, Nature. You know, so, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so every time they tried to speak somewhere, they were like, um, 
you know, they'd get uh, all these young people would, would show up with like pink hair and bones in their nose and start screaming. Um, and so they couldn't really get any work done. So I said, well, let me just try and get you some platforms in New York, you know, New York City, where I was. Um, and I didn't realize how deep this actually had gone, you know, the whole censorship thing. And so when I called these, uh, these different places, these different uh, places in New York that could potentially platform them, and I secured like three different venues, and then I was canceled. You know, like a few days later, they'd call back and say, oh, we can't, we can't do it. And they mm -hmm. wouldn't really give a, you know, a sound reason. They were just like hedged. But I knew what it was, you know. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is really something. This is really something. Because these kids have no power. Who's doing this? Why is this happening? You know, this is, you know, we have a First Amendment here in this country. You know, free speech, right? Well, this is really alarming. And then, of course, you know, you and Jordan Peterson were up in Canada talking about, uh, you know, the forced speech upon the, you know, upon you and upon him and how dangerous that was. Uh, we sort of lost that thread along the way, which I think is really disastrous because it was a really, really important one. Yeah, he yeah, he focused on that issue of compelled speech. Um, and I, we both testified at the Senate against Bill C-16 in 2017. And I focused more on the, the impact on women and girls and the sexism behind gender identity ideology, um, which, you know, was completely ignored. <laughs> By of course. <laughs> you know, and, fast forward all these years later, still completely ignored. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, so, how, you know, that's how I sort of got into this. And, um, well, you know. yeah, and I think you, I mean, you did what nobody else really did, not at least anybody that I was aware of um, at the time. Maybe more people are, are looking into this now, but you still don't really hear about it much. But you, as you said earlier, you looked at the money aspect, you know, I was looking at it from like a political perspective, from a feminist perspective, from an ideological perspective. Also, of course, from a, you know, reality perspective and a free speech perspective. But I had no idea where this came from. You know, I struggled for years to figure out, you know, why did this happen? You know, how did these activists have so much power to be changing laws and institutions across the world? Um, when did you catch on to the fact that this was a much bigger project than what it was sold as, which was, you know, like this grassroots movement for the rights of so-called transgender people? Well, you know, I'm an American, so whenever we want to find out anything, we just follow the money. <laughs> of course, right. Good so, idea. and money trails don't lie. They tell you everything that you need to know. So that's where I started. And so it was quite evident uh, rather quickly that um, this was all connected to the techno-medical complex. Um, one of the uh, families, and uh, well, one of the families that I found first was the Pritzkers. There was another feminist, uh, Mary Lou Singleton, who's wonderful, mm -hmm. and uh, she had worked on this issue somewhat, and she had talked about uh, Jennifer Pritzker and how he was funding the Palm Institute, which is a military organization, 
And, um, you know, so I heard that name and my ears perked up, like, who is this person? You know, so I went looking for him and I found this, you know, his entire family is, is hair follicle deep in the medical industrial complex. Um, and Jennifer Pritzker, uh, part of this family, they're like worth 29 billion. So they're one of the wealthiest families in America. And Jennifer Pritzker used to be James Pritzker. He's a, was a lieutenant in the um, armed services, a lieutenant colonel, I think, in the armed services. And, uh, you know, just about middle age, you know, he uh, divorces his wife and uh, he's got, I think, three children and um, he decides he's a woman. Uh, so, you know, he's so wealthy that, you know, you show up for work one day in, in a wig and pearls, you know, nobody's going to say anything if you tell them you're a woman. So, but he has, Hello, this, ma'am. <laughs> he has this foundation called Tawani Foundation. Sorry, which, the what foundation was that? Tawani Foundation. Tawani, okay. Yeah, Tawani Foundation. And they partner with Squadron Capital, which is an assets management firm that uh, is you know, manages the assets for um, medical supply and technological corporations. Um, and he funds through this, um, it's a nonprofit, and he funds um, human sexuality. So he funds all these human sexuality centers, and he funds um, WPATH, which is actually, WPATH is the World uh, Professional Association for Transgender Health. And they have, um, the uh, managing director over there is uh, Sue O'Sullivan, who also is the uh, co-owner and co-founder uh, of uh, Veris, Veris, Veritas, mm -hmm. um, which um, manages medical entities, um, including pharmaceutical corporations that sell cross-sex hormones, and they have symposiums, medical symposiums. Um, so they're all connected with WPATH. Um, little conflict of interest there. Um, so back to the Priskers. Um, so I, I looked at all the places that he was funding and what his his concept was behind this gender ideology. And he, you know, he is promoting the concept that there is no sex binary. There are no males and females. There is a spectrum of sex. So his centers are are selling this concept, this ideology. Um, and his whole entire family are, are selling, sending millions and millions of dollars to American, uh, not just American, but Canadian um, educational institutions, uh, sexuality centers, um, all sorts of uh, cultural institutions, but millions and millions of dollars to universities. And basically, you know, if you're getting millions and millions of dollars, you know, these cash straps institutions, you know, and they want you to take on this ideology, you're going to take on this ideology. Plus, most people think it's progressive because it's, you know, tied to the LGB, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have the Priskers, very, very wealthy. And then I ran into, so I, you know, just kept following the money. You know, I went to the LGB organizations in the United States. Um, and the most prominent was the Gill Foundation by Tim Gill, who comes out of Quark Press, and John Stryker, who comes out of um, banking, assets management, Greenleaf Trust. And uh, he's also heir to a multi-billion dollar medical corporation, Stryker Medical, which is in, um, I think it's there in like 75 countries. And they sell medical supplies. 
um, and he funds his um, nonprofit organization, his LGB now T organization. It was an LGB organization when he founded it. Um, as was Gill's foundation, Gill Foundation was an LGB organization when he founded it. They were very closely uh, aligned in terms of when they founded it. Uh, Gill was late 1990s, uh, Stryker was uh, early 2000. And they're also friends and they've worked together. Um, Pat Stryker, who's uh, John Stryker's sister, actually helped uh, Gill turn Colorado into a, a red state from a blue state with money and threat, you know, get on board or, you know, you're not gonna get money, you know? Um, so, and they're very, very powerful. They send millions and millions and millions of dollars to all these different cultural institutions to adopt this ideology. The ideology, gender ideology, it's very, very confusing if you start to talk about like, well, what does it mean, you know? Uh, people get really confused and they start going around in a circle and the language is so confusing. But if you look at what it does, it's not really that confusing. What it does is deconstruct sex, reproductive sex. They are deconstructing the boundaries around male and female. Legally, linguistically, socially, politically, and now materially, because, you know, they are actually medically assaulting young people's sex, healthy sex, for profit and for human engineering, engineering our, um, our human evolution. So that's what's actually going on here. It's not a human right movement. Um, this was, you know, started out as a fetish of adult men. The first um, man to appropriate uh, the first man to appropriate synthetic uh, simulacrums of women's biology um, was uh, in the United States was in the 1950s, Christine Jorgensen. And um, that came within a year of the first um, pornographic magazine using hmm. women as objects for uh, men's sexual entertainment. And that I think that very that's a very very important connection because um, now this 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 uh, development of bringing porn into every household that wants it you know, where men don't have to go out and you know to some seedy little back room in a in a dark you know Seven uh, Eleven or something you know they can just uh, you know have it delivered right to their home. This is important because it normalizes on a mass scale the sexual objectification of women. Um, and this happens at the same time where the first man in the United States appropriates female biology. Um, which and how I think did how did did he do that via like did he have the help of a sexologist a surgeon a doctor who was aiding him in you this know, process I can't really i can't really remember um how that all how how he got that done mm -hmm. i honestly i can't remember um, i mean my but, yeah sorry go on no that's okay well my yeah i mean my understanding now again 
partly through reading your work, but also just, you know, through looking at and studying this issue for many, many years, is that the, you know, transgenderism, the idea, the mainstreaming of transgender ideology or gender identity ideology, if you want to call it that, really did come from, like you say, these men who had these sexual fetishes connected to, in large part, I think, the objectification of women. So this idea of, first of all, these men were fetishizing, seeing themselves as objectified, sexualized women, this idea of being looked at um, and getting turned on by that fetishistic view of women and womanhood. Um, But also this idea of women really literally as just these kind of parts, right? Where you can just stick one onto your body. And that's what a woman is. You stick a breast here, you um, maybe put on a wig, you might do something drastic to your genitalia, um, but not seeing this as a whole functioning, holistic being that is not just a collection of body parts that you can assemble or or disassemble. Um, And then, of course, you know, there's the sexologists, I think, who were involved early on as well. Well, I think it's, you know, it's the absolute pinnacle of sexual objectification. Hmm. And it, um, men are now getting, going to have the experience of what that means to be a sexual object. Because it's not just us anymore. You know, women are appropriating um, male uh, parts, you know, men in parts. Um, to wear as a costume. Um, And this really fetishizes whether or not you have the actual fetish of autogynephilia, whether that's your thing or not. Um, Maybe you have some kind of trauma that this impacts you and you have some sort of, you know, revulsion for your own genitalia, you know, or whatever it is. I mean, this is still the absolute objectification of human sex because we are wholly sexed it's integral to our whole being just like you were just talking about we aren't parts we aren't sex parts we are a sexed you know a sex beings you know um and so and to disregard this boundary line between us is 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 just sexual objectification walking around with the body parts of, of the opposite sex it's objectification and mm-hmm. it, it amazes me how many you know so-called feminists don't see this i mean it's absolutely alarming to me but people don't see this but this you know it tells you how far down the rabbit hole we've gone with this how normalized this has already become since the 1950s right and now they're normalizing it further by you know, bringing it into the media by making laws, rearranging laws for these men to live openly, to live their fetish openly, to fetishize human sex openly. And this is really dangerous because, um, you know, we're organized, our society and our language and our laws are all organized around our sexual dimorphism for a reason, because this is how you reproduce the species. So to disregard that and to, to market this as, as a human right to augment yourself in this way 
um, skews sex. And not just for adults, but for children, it skews sex. And our children, now Amy Seuss is another feminist who did a brilliant presentation about this, which I wasn't really even thinking about. Um, and she talks about how, you know, children sense the world and gain authority by naming the world what they see, right? So if they see a man, but you're telling them it's a woman, and infants can recognize, you know, the face of a man or a woman, you know, they can differentiate. So if a child says, oh, this is a man, but you tell them it's a woman, you know, you're skewing their sense of reality, you know, their sense of authority over their own senses, you know, their sense perceptions. And this is really dangerous because you're, you're creating children that are, are very uh, insecure about what they see and know, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think that we we've forgotten um I mean, we seem to have forgotten our nature and how deeply, you know, evolution and our nature and biology are all interconnected in terms of not just thing obvious things like reproduction, but in terms of our intuition about other people and the world around us, you know, our ability to discern who's male and who's female isn't just about genitals. Like I'm sure you've heard as I have many, many, many times over these trans activists say, you're, you're just obsessed with our genitals or what are you going to do? Do like genital checks of everyone who goes into the bathroom, like stop worrying about what's in other people's pants. And, you know, it's like, it does matter what's in other people's pants actually, but you know, that's not the only way to discern who's male and who's female. And we as humans are built to be able to tell the difference between a male and a female of course, from the time that we're born. So yeah, that, that, uh, that I think. The species. And it's important to know who the other is, right? If you want yeah. to recreate the species. So that's, you know, that's an internal innate experience that we have that's being skewed. And to tell children, you know, to kind of, you know, to gaslight children that we're all being gaslit, but to tell children no, you're wrong. That's not a man. When they do know that what they see before them is a man you're right, it's just so dangerous. And I think would raise, it would create a generation of kids who can't trust themselves, who, like you say, are insecure. You know, you're taught to not believe yourself, to not believe what your body is telling you, what your instincts, what your intuits, what your in intuition, like your base nature is telling you. And you're supposed to just like doubt yourself all the time and doubt your perception of reality. That's scary. And this is, you know, people look at this as a phenomenon, you know, this is just emerged in the culture, you know, but I mean, I have the receipts. It's not just an emergence. It's not just a phenomenon. It's being driven into the culture by the, some of the wealthiest people in the world and not just men. You know, I wrote an article for the Federalist about the rich white men who are, you know, institutionalizing transgender ideology, because at that point I had really only found, you know, uh, the men. But, you know, more recently, I found women also. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so. Who are the women I mean, that you found? Well, Mackenzie Scott, for one, who is um, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, is funding millions and millions and millions and boatloads of millions of dollars to the LGBTQ. Hmm. Right. Um, 
And now her ex-husband has uh, a uh, hormone platform on uh, Amazon. He's got a fertility platform on Amazon. He's funding a gender clinic in, um, in Brooklyn to the tune of $166 million. Um, Jeff and Bezos. While, yeah, Jeff Bezos. And, um, you know, while that's not exactly a smoking gun, that she knows what she's doing, um, I, I find it highly doubtful that she doesn't understand what's transpiring here. Uh, that gender identity as an ideology deconstructs sex. Um, she'd have to be awfully naive, which is possible, I suppose. But, <clears throat> you know, and then you have Penny Pritzker, who's part of the Pritzker family, uh, helps get Obama elected. Um, who passed through a lot of policies for people who disown their sex um, and to create a, uh, a normalization, you know, laws for basically dissociation from sex reality. Um, and I mean, one of the big players, of course, is Martine Rothblatt. Who's Martine Rothblatt? Can you tell me a little bit about him? Sure. Martin Rothblatt is, uh, he's an American entrepreneur and a lawyer, and um, he's exceedingly rich as well. He's a millionaire, not quite a billionaire yet. Um, he calls himself a transhumanist and a uh, transsexual. He's appropriated female biology for himself. Um, feels quite entitled to that. He basically wrote a book, I think in the 1980s, uh, from transgender to transhumanism and talking about it as an on-ramp. And it's a very small little book and he sort of cobbled together theories of queer theory and feminist theory and uh, critical race theory. Uh, and he's sort of cobbled those together in a not a very well, not very good way. And he's created, um, uh, an ideology of disembodiment, disassociation. He feels like sorting people into men and women is tantamount to South African apartheid. He thinks that the way to do away with um, inequality of the sexes is to skew sex. You know, you can choose to be whatever sex that you want to be. He's basically built a blueprint. This is really his ideology playing out here in the culture. He um, I don't know when he met exactly Williamson's Bainbridge, who was another Bainbridge, who was another uh, transhumanist, who was very, very involved in cults and writing about cults and writing about gaming and technology. Um, and he's now sitting on, uh, he's the head of the uh, human cyber, cyborg um, program at the um, National Science Foundation in the United States, which funds like 25% of all the research in science uh, for the United States. And Rothblatt met up with him, and it's like his his fetish met the uh, Williamson's Bainbridge's um, his ideology about driving technology and humanity and melding humanity with tech. Uh, now he's not the first person to come up with that, but he really advanced um, those ideas, and that's basically what transhumanism is: it's melding um, humans with uh, technology and um, <clears throat> biotechnology and nanotechnology to advance our species. So it's sort of, it's, it is actually eugenics. Um, 
And so, and also uh, Rothblatt has, um, he founded Sirius XM satellite radio. He thinks that, that these satellites that um, surveil us above the planet are the nervous system of humanity. He was also greatly influenced by <laughs> Ray Kurzweil of Google uh, fame, who's also a transhumanist. And he's also written about the uh, future of technological reproduction, that eventually it will be usurped by tech, reproduction, human reproduction. And this is a good thing, because you can have the genes of, you know, tons of different people, maybe even animals, and um, yeah, you could be self-creating, you know, or you're, uh, you will be an amalgam of beings, right? You won't just have one set of beings. A super being. Yeah, sort of a super being. And um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a kook, right? But look, how crazy is it that our, our entire society in the span of a decade, our laws, our language, our social organization, you know, all of it are being transformed, rapidly transformed around this idea that men and women are sort of the same. You know, they're, they're assimilated into each other. There is no boundary. And um, what else? He's worked on the Human Genome Project at the UN level. He's uh, got a, a xenotransplantation farm, which is the, the transplantation of animal organs into humans. Mm -hmm. He's uh, made a robot of his wife. He's pretty famous for that. He's uh, um, started a uh, biopharmaceutical corporation. He was the owner of a biopharmaceutical corporation and many, many other things. He's, he's really accomplished like so many different things. It's just incredible. And because he has, he's sort of a star wherever he goes. So he can sit, you know, he can just go up and start talking about, you know, transgender to transhumanism and people are going, yay! You know, Martin Rathbun, he's so smart. He's, he's a so genius. Cool. Oh God, he's, a, he's a genius. He's actually, you know, he's a religious fanatic. You know, he's crazy. And um, I don't mind saying that. He's, he's absolutely out of his mind. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, but this is, this is what he does. He goes around and he lectures. He's also part of Out Leadership, which is the business networking arm of the LGBT. Mm. Now LGBT. Right? Um, and he's a big presence over there. So, you know, people know about his ideology and, um, and it's not the only one. He's not the only transhumanist talking about this. I mean, uh, you know, I just heard a, uh, an interview, um, what's his name? Istvan, Zoltran Istvan. He's another transhumanist. He ran for president. And I just, um, listened to, uh, the other night, I listened to a, video of him, an interview he was doing with, um, and I don't know who was doing the interview, but it was also an interview with Ray Kurzweil of Google, you know, the transhumanist. And so they were talking about transhumanism. And um, Istvan was was saying that, uh, now remember, he's, he's somebody that ran for president. <laughs> um, and he was talking about uh, how transhumanism and the LGBT Inc., I call it the LGBT Inc. are morphing, you know, uh, because both want morphological autonomy, legal morphological autonomy. So what you have here is not gender laws for the rights of people to, you know, run around with the, the body parts of the opposite sex, but for 
people to augment themselves. This is the um, the legal edifice being established for augmented humanity. You know, melding us. I mean, like Elon Musk's, for instance, his disk. You know, the the disk, the uh, Neuralink, just uh, got approved for uh, for putting into humans. Mm. So, so that's one form of transhumanism. You know, and uh, I mean, I already, I always tell people we're already half warped, so don't worry about. where is transhumanism going oh my god well look at where it is you know i mean i can't exist without my phone i don't know about you but right yeah i I lose my phone we're so our lives are totally intertwined with technology as it is i mean we can barely it would be very difficult to function without a phone nowadays just like you know you wouldn't be able to travel get around contact people online now Hey, let's get together. Let's do a Zoom. Oh, kill me. <laughs> Socializing on the internet seems like a nightmare to me. I'm like, I can work here. <laughs> I don't want to also like, socialize kids here. Have, kids can't even have a conversation anymore. No. You know, I meet up with an old person and it's like, oh, please talk to me. Tell me something about history. Tell me about something about your life. Please talk to me. Because children today don't understand. They have never developed the art of conversation because they haven't had to. They're, they're in their tech all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, it's disturbing. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, so do you think that this whole transgender movement, this whole transgender ideology, this whole kind of trans takeover over every single institution, politics, laws, media, so on and so forth, do you think that comes from transhumanism? You know, what was the aim here with these guys who were talking about who started funneling money into all of these institutions and into academia to, you know, essentially force them to take on this ideology? Like, what was the point or what is the point it's still going on? Well, I think there's many different points. First of all, you know, you go back to, you know, these sexologists, John Money and um, Harry Benjamin, who, you know, who want, who took these men and, you know, uh, who, with this fetish and were creating these surgeries to manipulate them to look like females, sort of. Um, you know but then as technology increased you know plastics to create you know synthetic simulacrums of people's genitalia um, uh, improved you know they wanted to to use them so they did so but if you're going to sell your product you have to market it right so as things advanced um, and Keep in mind that as, as this is advancing these technologies, what's also advancing is um, woman hatred gone mainstream through porn. You know, and it's it, it increases annually um, in, in depravity because men being stimulated by porn need to up the ante. They have to have the ante upped for them so that they can get off. Um, because you know what. You know, what was like, for instance, you know, Playboy magazine when it came out, you know, that was like what you'd see now on any music stage, right? I mean, you'd see much worse now on any music stage. 
Right? Yeah, I mean, it's what you see on Instagram, just your entire, you know, social media feed, depending on what your algorithm thinks you want to see. But it's unavoidable, you know, even if you're not seeking out sexualized, objectified women on your Instagram feed, that kind of stuff's going to show up. And you're right, it looks like a Playboy magazine, you know, maybe no nipples, but beyond that. So you have that and you also have, um, you know, the infiltration of the uh, actual lesbian, gay and bisexual civil rights movement to procure the ability to to be in public with your with your lover, you know, with your partner and be OK, be safe. Uh, that was infiltrated uh, during the AIDS crisis by the technomedical complex. Um, and it was still a very young movement, you know. Uh, just starting to procure rights. So then these edifices came up to service uh, this population and also the general public to teach them about how AIDS is spread, right? And to get them the drugs that they need. Remember ACT UP, you know, laying in the streets because they, they needed these drugs. Um, so here you you basically have the, uh, the techno-medical complex um, comes into this... Um, you know, movement, and they never leave, you know, and then once AIDS dissipates uh, in the United States, then they have to, now this is when Gill Foundation is formed, and Stryker Foundation is formed, so that's kind of interesting, because they're humongous, and they poured a, a bazillion dollars into, um, into forming more LGBTs, you know, um, and why would they be doing this at, at a time when, you know, AIDS is, is really, um, it's coming down, you know, with these, uh, you don't need all these organizations, you know, LGB people aren't getting sick, right? Um, so, but then it becomes gay marriage. These organizations are, are all geared to securing gay marriage, which as, you know, someone on the left all of my life, you know, I thought, oh, this is a wonderful thing. This is a great thing. Um, but now I see it in context, and it's like actually tying, it was tying gender ideology to our political apparatus. Um, and also creating a, a marketing constituency, um, uh, especially when you add uh, what they call people, well, you know, people who don't disown their sex, who have a medical assault on their sex. Um, you know, when you tie them to the LGB, you create a marketing constituency that's going to need uh, reproductive technology. And as we talked about before, the part of the whole transhumanist um, agenda is to uh, usurp human reproduction and move it to the tech sector. So, right. you know, then, I mean, it, when you get into the whole technology, I mean, this is being, you know, talked about all over. It's being written about all over the advancements, the rapid advancements in technology, the exponential growth in technology, and also in, in uh, reproductive technologies. Um, and it's it's incredible. But nobody's tying that to, you know, this, what, what they're being sold as a human rights movement. You know, yeah. it's genius to do it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's strange because I think, it, you know, when we're talking about this and when you think about it, you can see pretty clearly that things that, you know, these new technologies that are trying to allow or claim that they do enable men to breastfeed, for example, that enable men to lactate, um, you know, these technologies that claim to 
you know, that aim to um, allow men to give birth, you know, through uterus transplants. Um, it seems to me that this is all experimentation to, like you say, turn reproduction over to tech, to take that away from women and from nature and to make it a, a technological project, which, you know, if you read Brave New World, which I reread last week while I was in Hungary, it's a pretty disturbing project. Actually, you know, a couple of years ago, they were researching, you know, implanting wounds into men. Um, and now they've already graduated from that to how to sustain that, how to sustain the wound after um, the, the, the um, child is taken out, the baby is taken out of the womb. To sustain the womb inside the body men? Inside the body and how to, to manifest menstruation. In men, so that they can have the full experience of being woman. Yes, this is absolutely being researched about. So yeah, this is the level of crazy that we're at with this ideology. It's so crazy, and it seems like it's happened so fast. Um, I, I mean, why? Why? What's is this all? Is this all well, about money? Is this all about profit for these these? companies and these men well, and these transhumanists profitable. Or... I mean these these surgeries to um these surgeries assaulting human healthy human sex uh is in the neighborhood of five hundred thousand dollars for each one, right? And you're promoting this as a as a good thing. And you know as healthcare, um, as necessary life saving yeah, healthcare. Not only in healthcare, but as as just expression. I mean, Johnson and Johnson, you know, does these um, promotions where they're they're talking about, you know, you just want to masculinize your chest. Yeah. We we can do it for you. You know, it doesn't have to be about dysphoria. You can, you can just want to masculinize your chest, right? Um, so that yeah. you feel more like you. It's a, it's yeah, all framed exactly. in this so that you can really be the real you. So that you feel more like yourself. This is your true expression, which is so strange. It's such a strange way to frame what's really going on because you wouldn't think that really, you know, you want to be accepted as the real you would entail $500,000 of surgeries. Right. And that's just the surgery on the genitalia itself, right? Hmm. Uh, but it doesn't account for anti-rejection medications, antibiotics, special research, special surgeons. There was 100 surgeons uh, doing these kinds of surgeries in 2016. Now there's over 1,000. Hmm. Um, you know, the medical supplies, the, uh, the teaching of surgeons, um, the cross-sex hormones, the puberty blockers, um, the other surgeries that many, many people, you know, go on to have once they've had genital surgery, they go on to uh, make their feet smaller, uh, shorten their clavicle, uh, get rid of their Adam's apple, shave their jaw, shave their, you know, their, their forehead. Um, it's a compulsion, you know, it's, it's an addiction and a compulsion. Um, and it's being sold as progressive because it, it's a lot of money. And not only is it a lot of money now, but when we, when we move into 
um, other kinds of augmentation for humans, melding them more integrally with technology, like wearables and inserts and nanotechnology and genetic manipulations. Um, this is all going to profit the medical industrial complex. So this is all like sort of grooming. We're still in the embryonic stage. Um, but like I said, it's moving very, very rapidly. So we should get on board with, you know, what, what the hell is going on here? You know, because this whole gender identity crap is not shaken. You know, it's not it's not working for me. I don't know how how it's well it's working for you, but it's not working for me. You know, society, yeah, no, politicians, corporations, international law firms, um, investment houses, BlackRock, Vanguard—they're not rearranging um, everything that they do for the minuscule amount of men who have this fetish of owning, you know, female biology. They've taken this fetish of owning female biology and taking it to its absolute zenith, which is, you know, deconstructing womanhood, literally, and usurping our, our capacity to, you know, to gestate the, 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 the next generation and, and giving it to tech. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on here. And, you know, uh, I don't know why it's so slow to, to penetrate here. I mean, I started talking about the medical industrial complex and people were like, what? Their heads were exploding when I started to talk about it. Like, oh my God, it's not that, it's not that. That's, that's a conspiracy theory. And now they're all talking about that. So I feel very confident in moving the, the, the goalposts now, you know, because they're dealing with that. Okay, now you got that covered? Okay, good. Now I'm going to move the goalposts because it really, really is not just about that. It's about this, you know? So hopefully they're getting on board. But, you know, Italian feminists, um, uh, Latin uh, feminists, they get it. You know, they mm. get the whole transhumanist thing. They get the whole usurpation of uh, human reproduction. Um, they get it. You know, they just get it. Whereas here and um, mostly in the UK, they're just not quite getting it. You know, yeah. uh, I'm still a conspiracy theorist. I'm still a nut. <laughs> I don't care. Well, I mean, how many conspiracy theorists turn out to be right and conspiracy theories turn out to be right in the end? <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a frustrating label because it means everyone writes you off and ignores you. And then eventually when they realize it's true, they usually don't apologize. But at least, you know, you're probably right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that's yeah, any comfort. I don't think yeah, that right. comforts me. I think it more just annoys me. But I mean, so we we talk a lot. I mean, we as we as feminists, like we as those who are critical of this whole movement, we talk a lot about the men, about autogonophilia, about the porn aspect, the fetishistic aspect, the objectification of women aspect, the fact that, you know, most of these guys are men who have fetishes that take their fetish way too far. Um but what about the women? Like, what about these women that are that are transitioning to try to become men, as it were? Um, I mean, what do you think is behind that? What do you think is happening there? There's a brutal homophobia, you know, still rampant in society. Um, I think especially towards lesbians, um, not as much towards gay men. Hmm. Um I think that's part of it. I think that, um, you know, we live in such a dissociated environment anyway, so that when young women start going through puberty and they start exhibiting the signs of changing into a woman um, and they have eyes on them and people are judging them and looking at them and, you know, um, 
that's a lot of pressure for them. Um, and you couple that with um, a society that's inundated with vile, absolutely vile pornography. That is not only are they watching, but the boys that they're interacting with are also watching. And the girls that they're interacting with are also watching. Um, and this is sexually traumatizing, um, which I think is a big part of the uh, dissociation factor for young people. But they're also on their technology all the time. And this is really, um, this works like a cult. It really does. It goes over the, you know, it's, um, it's a technological cult. And it's being, uh, the uh, indoctrination is coming over the technology itself. Um, you know, that you can actually transcend your humanity, your sex humanity. I mean, it really is transhumanism in a dress. You know, it's basically, you know, the same message that you can transcend your humanity mm -hmm. um, through technological and pharmacological uh, manipulations. And again, a yeah, a rejection of nature. I mean, it's like girls going through puberty, I, I feel like girls aren't really given any kind of context and they're not getting any positive messaging about going through puberty, about menstruating, about their fertility. They don't understand their fertility. They don't understand their reproductive cycles. I yeah. didn't when I was a kid. And that was, you know, I think things are even worse now. You know, I wasn't growing up in a porn culture where I was being flooded with pornographic imagery constantly you know I didn't have the internet when I was a kid but we didn't learn about how our reproductive cycles really worked and even you know why menstruation why is this important why can't we just take a pill and stop it because it's inconvenient and it's gross and it doesn't feel good um so yeah I think naturally girls go through puberty and they're getting objectified. They see what objectification means. They see what happens in pornography. They are experiencing the way that they're being treated by boys and men in this society. Often and unfortunately, they're being molested, sexually harassed, of course, sexually abused. You know, it's a traumatic experience. It's bad enough. Your body starts changing and all these things happen and you don't want them to happen. Why would you want any of those things to happen? It doesn't feel fun when you're 13, 14, 15. Um, and then it's connected to all of this other difficult and confusing and traumatic stuff. And yeah, you're not, there's no pause. There's no celebration. There's no positive messaging exactly. around any of this. There's no women's culture to support girls through this. Right, right. There's no women's culture. Because I think right. there used to be, right? I think there used to be a women's culture. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I I wonder I, I'll I'll wrap this up pretty soon. We're almost at an hour, I think, but I I wonder what do you think about that accusation that we hear quite a bit now, especially from you know, there's a lot more people who are catching on to what's going on. So there's a lot of men who are suddenly realizing, like, what is happening here? <laughs> Why is this man competing as a woman in this uh, swimming competition? Um, and getting up in arms and being like, how did the feminists let this happen? We're seeing, you know, guys like Matt Walsh 
saying this is all the fault of feminism. This is the feminist fault. They did this. They're behind this. And we're seeing a lot of other guys repeating that. They're, I, I'm saying men because, you know, like I'm sure there's some women saying it too, but it is mostly men. And I think it's mostly men because they don't really understand feminism. They don't like feminism or they don't like what they know about feminism, which fair enough, because the feminism yeah. you see in the mainstream is pretty stupid. <laughs> Do you think do you think that there's any legitimacy to that, though? You know, that idea that feminism is responsible for all of this gender identity nonsense? It's a good question. I mean, I do kind of see what they see. I don't agree with it exactly, but I do see what they see. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, we were trying to, you know, in the second wave, we were trying to discuss stereotypes. And I'm not talking about biological propensities, you know, like, um, you know, women's emotionality and their gravitation to babies. And um, I don't know, give me some other things, biological. Uh, like being nurturing. Yes, being nurturing, thank you. Like those are biological propensities that I think are, are built in, you know, but, it doesn't make us get up wanting to wear, you know, tight skirts and high heels and makeup, you know? So those things are stereotypes and, and that women are no good at math or that women are not really interested in building things. You know, women are only interested in babies. Those are the things that we tried to um, discuss and we needed a word right. to discuss. Or we're not suited for politics. We can't take conflict. Right. Like right. these things are too you know, they're, they're too upsetting for women to be able to cope with because we're so delicate and sensitive and emotional and irrational and just let the men handle it. Exactly. exactly. So that's the kind of thing that we were addressing. Right. Um, but it somehow has morphed into, you know, uh, it did sort of morph into, you know, we're the same, you know, we're as strong as men, whereas this is men. And we really cut out men's jobs, you know, um, but when you get down to it, really, it's, uh, it's technological advancements as they're shown to the capitalist market uh, that is really, really driving this. Um, because they can, they will, you know. And, um, and I think it's, it, it, people underestimate how it's changed us. You know, uh, technology allowed for um, the pill, for instance, you know, so that women could have equal opportunity to have sexual relationships outside of marriage, right? Um, and, you know, you could argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was a technological development that changed us. The washing machine changed us. You know, women were at home and they were working. They were part of, you know, uh, the workforce, you know, and um, they were imperative. They used to wash the clothes, they used to cook the meals, but now, you know, you can, you got a microwave, now you got a washing machine, now you got a this, a vacuum cleaner, and women were at home going, holy shit, what do I have to do? You know, so they started thinking about like, wow, I want to do things too, you know, because now I don't have anything to do, you know, so instead of actually um, doing things immediately, they all got on Prozac, right? <laughs> <laughs> well you're like i feel purposeless i don't know what to do this drug makes me feel better exactly so you 
know, and then they started to talk to each other, you know, like, holy shit, this blows. You know? so, you know, they started consciousness raising groups and they realized that they were all going through a similar thing. Um, and they started to talk about the patriarchy, you know. Um, I really hate that word because it, it's, it sort of creates this monolith, like, like men are horrible people and they're doing this all to us. But it's really, it's technological advancements as they're shown to the market. And men are in the market at that point. You know, men were in the market, you know, because women were at home taking care of children, right? right. And so we haven't really, you know, uh, branched out that much from that. I mean, we have, but we haven't, you know, completely. And so men are still... Um, you know, in prominent positions in the society, you know. Uh, so, yes, they govern things, you know. Um, lots of them are idiots, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying that's not true. <laughs> and um, it is a rather oppressive system, you know, you know, if you're a woman. But, um, you know, you can't just, you know, you can't run around screaming patriarchy all the time and misogyny all the time. Well, no, um, and because those words, done, no, because you know? it's a turn off and it, yeah. people shut down. But it also doesn't really feel like it's explaining much because if you say patriarchy, then men are going to say like, "I don't have any power." You know, like that. Not all men have all this power in society. Um, I think right. that feminists would say, you know, well, we're talking about men as a class, men as a group, but a lot of men feel quite powerless in this world. So it doesn't feel like a very good explanation for what's going on. It's just not so black and white. And it creates this us versus them thing that isn't super helpful in, in terms of these conversations. Maybe if we're talking about Saudi Arabia, that makes a lot of sense. Um, right, right. But I don't know if it makes sense in places like Canada and America. Um, I, I guess I wonder if you think that we're done for, you know, <laughs> like is, is, there any fighting this? We are fighting it, some of us, but do you think this is a fight that we can win or is it just too far gone and too far out of our control because of the players and the money behind it and, and how far things have gone? It's a really good question and I don't have the answer. I know that you know um, our enslavement is worth fighting against. It's worth resisting. And it's worth resisting, you know, what's happening to children right now. I mean, even if we go down, if, if we go down without fighting, you know, what are we? We're already bored. You know, we're already bored. So what's the point? You know, um, a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. A lot of movement has happened. I mean, not at the rate that we would like, but um, I think when people get up to speed as to what is actually going on here, that it's not a human rights movement for a marginalized group of people that are born in the wrong body or have dysphoria about their genitalia. I mean, you know, these, these entities, you know, are, are not coming up. Um, and supporting this because of, the, of a minuscule amount of the population. Our societies are not being overhauled, radically overhauled in a, a, at great speed um, because a few people have dysphoria about their genitalia. This is just not a logical, you know, it's not a logical thought. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, what is a logical thought is that uh, technology is advancing exponentially. Where there are all sorts of things about genetic manipulations, DNA manipulations. CRISPR came out. Um, you know, AI, Chat GPT three. You know, uh, AI is going to take over. It's becoming so powerful. Uh, you know, I mean, we hear all these things, but we're not making the connection to what's going on here. I mean, we have. 400 gender clinics, gender clinics for children in the United States. That is an outrage. It's an absolute sick, sick development. What is going on here? People have to start paying attention here because this is not human rights. That's bizarre. It's an absolutely bizarre uh, thought process. It's not a thought process. It's just a giving over to, you know, all the, the nonsense that you're being fed. You know, transgenderism doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything because it means anything that you want it to mean. You know, uh, you have a sexual fetish. You, uh, you're experiencing dysphoria about your genitalia. You have an intersex or uh, disorder of uh, sexual development, an intersex condition. You're appropriating the, um, the words uh, of other cultures for feminine men. Uh, you know, you're rebelling against sex role stereotypes, you're embracing sex role stereotypes. This is all under transgender. You, you can't have a word with no borders and expect it to mean something. This transgender is what it means and what it does. It's actually a conglomerate of corporate and political pressure to get people on board with this ideology that dissociation from sex reality is progressive. It's a human right. That's what's going on here. Thank you so much for explaining all this and talking about all this with me. And thanks so much for, for your work. I think, yeah, it seems like you're one of the few people who are making all these connections and it's enormously helpful in terms of sorting out what's going on with this very strange, confusing ideology that's taken hold of so many people. Um, so yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate it. Oh, it was and, so enjoyable to talk to you. Really, yeah. I really appreciate you having me on. Can you? Yeah, it was. Can you let people know where they can find more of your work online? Oh, sure. The eleventh hour blog dot com. The eleven is numerical. Uh, I have a sub stack. Jennifer Billick. It's under my own name. Um, I'm at BJ Portraits on Twitter, which I'm obsessed with <laughs> me too i just love twitter <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a mass hallucination it's, just <laughs> it's just always so amusing to me the other ones i could i could leave for sure through all the other social media sites and if i actually i hardly ever am on facebook but you know well the instagram and facebook if i'm on them for too long make me feel kind of ill but yeah, yeah man you really I almost never get sick of it <laughs> <laughs> so funny <laughs> okay well thanks again it was so great to talk to you such a um, pleasure I, yeah i hope to that we can chat again sometime soon okay take care bye bye i'm megan murphy thanks for tuning in to feminist current you can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. 
We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. We appreciate that. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. We have been ad-free, sponsorship-free, wealthy, investor-free, and fully independent since 2012. If you enjoyed this podcast, and if you value independent women's media by women, for women, no compromises, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the Donate tab. 